Well, hey, church family. Shalom. So shalom is one of the most well-known Hebrew words in our world. Uh, it's how Jewish people often say hello. It's how they greet one another. So again, I say shalom. shalom. You guys are good. <laughs> when you leave, you can say that to, to one another, shalom. Shalom in English is often translated what? We learned this last week from Pastor Steve, peace. But that, that notion of, of peace doesn't quite cut it. Or I, I should say, honestly, our understanding of peace is so shallow. Let me illustrate it this way. A few months ago, actually several months ago, my wife went back to Tennessee to visit her mom. And while she was there, you know, having a good visit, ministering to her, she saw this beautiful crystal glass water pitcher. I mean, it is handcrafted, ornate, extraordinary, extravagant. It's just gorgeous. And so my mother-in-law gave that to my wife and said, why don't, why don't you take that home? I mean, it's so beautiful. Like, I can't even call it a water pitcher. It's like a vase, right? Just, whoa, you know. This is, if you have a china cabinet, any of you have a china cabinet? This is, this is nobody has a china cabinet? Okay, this is, <laughs> this is uh, something you put in the china cabinet. Like, you don't take it out every day. We're not using it to, you know, put milk in, to pour milk for our kids' cereal. This is something you, you bring out for the guests. This beautiful, handcrafted water pitcher. We don't have a china cabinet. In fact, all our cabinets are full, so we didn't really have any spot to put this, and so we put it on top of the refrigerator. Okay, don't get ahead of me. <laughs> put it on top of the refrigerator, precariously placed. Now, I'm not passing blame. I'm not pointing fingers, probably because it was me, but here it is, this beautiful crystal glass water pitcher on the refrigerator. Now, we have hardwood floors in our house, and hardwood floors like to creak and groan. They have vibrations, and I guess over time, the water pitcher started to wobble a little bit, and so I'm come, a few weeks ago, literally three weeks ago, I'm, I'm coming up the stairs. I run up the stairs, and I'm walking through the kitchen, and I guess the vibrations did this enough, and the water pitcher just leapt off of the refrigerator, just jumped right off, and you know, I, I, I could see it in slow-mo, hits the granite countertops, and shattered into thousands of pieces, to which my wife, because she just had to be home at that moment, runs in, and she's like, it's like Darth Vader at the end of Revenge of the Sith, like, no! This beautiful, she loved this thing. And of course, I'm like, I, 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 I didn't, you know, it wasn't me, it was the floor, the floor did it, you know. And, and here is this thing, so beautiful, so elegant, in perfect shalom, now in anti-shalom. Because shalom means complete wholeness. It's when something is in a state as it should be, as it was meant to be. Things are good. Things are as they should be. And it was as it should be until it wasn't as it should be, shattered. In fact, the word shalom was often used when they, you would see a stone in Hebrew, and if it had no cracks, it was in a place of shalom. Or a wall with no gaps was in a state of shalom. So shalom was well-being, it was harmony, it was fulfillment, it's contentment, it's peace, it's 
things are good, they're whole, as they should be. Now, the opposite of shalom is broken. Something's missing. Destruction. Shattered. And you look at our world, and it's not in a state of shalom. It's in anti-shalom. It's the opposite of shalom. Look at the war in Ukraine. You look at war without and war within, all the conflicts in our world, famine, riots, abortion, suicide, homicide, genocide, rape, murder, abuse, molestation, maybe even depression, loneliness, mental health, something is off in our world. And you look at ourselves, something is wrong. You look at every person and things are not as they should be. Not in a state of shalom. So much brokenness in our world, so much brokenness in our heart, and yet there's this longing to be made whole. A longing for shalom. Peace is not simply the absence of conflict or division. A few years ago, I met with a guy who was deeply struggling in his marriage, and he said him and his wife were just fighting like cats and dogs, arguing all the time. And he said, you know what, we just decided not to talk to one another, and finally we have peace in our home. I said, brother, you don't have peace. You have quiet, and quiet is not the same as peace. True peace requires taking what is broken and restoring it to wholeness. Shalom is a restoration. It's a reconciliation. It is taking what is broken and making it whole, making it right with others and with God. And so maybe you think about your marriage. It needs shalom. Your home needs shalom. Your relationships, your family, your workplace, your community, maybe even your heart. Your heart is crying out for shalom. Your mind desperately needs shalom. Well, praise God, we know the prince of shalom. So turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of the biggest books, largest books of the Old Testament, 66 chapters. Isaiah chapter 9, either in your copy of the scriptures, you can look on the screen or on your Bible app on your phone. Let me set the table for us. Here's the scenario. You look in Isaiah chapter, first of all, Isaiah was written by who? Isaiah, it's not a trick question. Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah is prophesying on behalf of the Lord. And you look in chapter 8, and God, as they, God's people, as they had for centuries, rejected God to follow false gods and to worship idols. Now before you're like, yeah, but that's an ancient problem. Is it? Because I think that we have replaced idols of wood, stone, and gold for idols of plastic and glass. Instead of worshiping the false god Baal, we now have worship of the bears. <laughs> Even in a horrible season like this season, 401ks, gym memberships, comfort, success, popularity, advancement, promotions, money, sex, pleasures. It's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. I actually believe idolatry is rampant and ubiquitous. This is more a problem now than ever before. We're actually just really good at it. It's insidious. It's subtle. 
Could it be that this errant, misguided worship is the source of our brokenness and our lack of shalom? I would say yes. So, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, tells his people that the Assyrians, this Assyrian kingdom, the army of Assyria is coming for you, and they are coming lock, stock, and barrel. And they are going to conquer, and they're going to divide the land, and they're going to displace you, and they will exile you. And the people were rightfully afraid. The king was afraid. They were fearful, filled with dread. But instead of taking their concerns to the Lord and inquiring of God, according to Isaiah 8, 19, they consulted mediums and necromancers. So people are seeking answers from anywhere, even soothsayers and psychics. Concerning, you know, seeking a... psychics on behalf of the dead instead of seeking God. There's this air of spiritualism, but not seeking God. And he says that the rebellious are contemptuous against God. They turn up their noses against him. It's literally, they turn their faces against him, want nothing to do with him. And instead of turning to God, they turn to the world. But when they turn to the world, they find nothing but despair, darkness, Anguish. In fact, it says the phrase, the gloom of anguish. <laughs> that sounds horrifying. That sounds cold. The gloom of anguish. So despair, darkness, death, destruction, gloom, anguish, brokenness. No shalom. Until you get to chapter 9. Now look at chapter 9. What's the very first word? Isaiah 9, verse 1. Very first word. But, one of the greatest words in all of the Bible is but. It's the word of contrast. But things were this way, now they are this way. We were in gloom and darkness, now we are not. But, oh, what a great word. But there will be no gloom for her, for the faithful, faithful remnant of God's people who was in anguish. In fact, this prophecy in Isaiah, which is written 700 years before the birth of Jesus, is so sure, so steadfast, he's so confident that Isaiah actually writes these words in past tense, as if these things are coming, it's almost as if they've already happened in our time, 700 years before Jesus. He's that sure, that confident these things will happen. So all of a sudden, their gloom is interrupted. Look at verse two. By the way, I'm gonna give you several points of what shalom is, what shalom means. And (laughs) all right, this is cheesy, but it's Christmas time. Each of these points is gonna be a lyric from a Christmas song. If you can guess the song that each lyric is from, by the way, well, I'm not gonna give you a prize. I don't have that much money, but I'll give you a high five afterwards. How about that? So here we go. Shalom is, first of all, light. In thy dark streets shineth thy everlasting light. Look at verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Oh, how our world is a land of deep darkness. In fact, in Hebrew, it's the word death shadow. It's literally a land of death shadow. Now, where might we have heard death shadow or shadow of death? Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the death shadow, that's this word. So they're dwelling in a land of death 
shadow, deep darkness. Nothing is more anti-shalom than death. Death represents the opposite of what God intended when he created us, when he created mankind. Death represents brokenness, shatteredness, the opposite of life. It's definitely not shalom. Things are not as they should be. Death is the origin of every troubled heart in despair. If you suffer with anxiety, death is the root because it's the consequence of our rebellious nature, which is what we call sin. I mean, watch the news. Talk to others. Look at your neighborhood, your schools, your community. Look at your own heart. Death shadow. Not shalom. People without Christ, so much death, so much gloom, so much anguish, they're living in darkness. They're spiritually blind. They don't even realize salvation exists, let alone that they're blind to salvation in Jesus, and so their worldview is completely skewed. Years ago, we used to live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I remember a, a city bus would drive by around this time at Christmas, and you know on the side of a bus it has the ad panel, and it said, millions of Americans are good without God. And I just, it broke my heart. Like, man, darkness. In New York, there have been billboards that have said this, have reason this season, Christmas is a myth. Man, that should break your heart. Darkness, gloom of anguish. Despair, they don't know any better. Ignorance is not a bliss. Ignorance is a blight. Ignorance is a curse. You don't know what you don't know until you realize you don't know what you don't know. And that's the thing about, imagine if you lived in darkness, like in perpetual darkness, like you lived in a cave and have never seen light. You wouldn't know the beauty of color. You wouldn't know the beauty of anything. You wouldn't be able to see anything clearly. Everything would be muted. Everything would be skewed. Everything would be shadowed, death shadow over everything. Because when you've always lived in darkness, you think you're good. You think things are grand until you see the light. Until the light comes on and you see things for how they really are. Look at these verses from Matthew chapter 4. The land, this is actually literally quoting these verses in Isaiah 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now you know what this is referring to, right? Literally, if you look at this in context in Matthew 4, Christians, listen, we once walked in darkness. Do you realize that? Ephesians 2 says that. 1 Peter 2 says that. We once walked in darkness, but now we have seen a great light. What or who is that great light? Come on, church. Oh, come on. Say it like you mean it. Who's the great light? Jesus. Jesus is the light that shines on the darkness in our heart. The gloom of anguish is dispelled when Jesus enters in. We see this in Luke 179. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he's prophesying that Jesus will come, and he says he comes to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of shalom, the way of peace. And so light and life to all he brings. The light of Jesus illuminates people living in darkness. Oh, the darkness is real. 
Make no mistake, darkness is real. But it's not the final reality. And so people have a choice. Either sink deep, deeper and deeper in despair, or you look up with hope to see the light of Jesus. So, shalom is light. Second, shalom is joy. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Look at verse three. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. How many times is joy or rejoice or glad mentioned in this verse? Four times. Joy, 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 glad. So it says that the, the people will rejoice like farmers in an unusually a massive, abundant harvest. So, you know, you do the work as a farmer, you reap the crops, and you have this unusually massive harvest. You can't even fit all the grain into the storehouse, and so you would be, you know, I can't do it, but I, there's my attempt to do a little jig. You'd be jumping for joy. Or it says if, uh, let's say, the, the army of your people goes out and they conquer the lands, which they would do back in the day, they come back with plunder from the enemy. Now, I, the best modern example I can think of this is when I was a kid, my dad would go on a business trip and he'd come back with all kinds of swag, cheap stuff he'd get at a conference, but all these like little toys and trinkets, and he'd be like, here you go. And he'd be like, yeah, Christmas, right? So imagine your kids, maybe that how they are on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, like, yes, opening the gifts. There's joy. Now, it's joy in materialistic things, let's be honest. But there's happiness, there's joy. This is the joy that is going on right here. Now, I said happiness, I probably shouldn't have, because you know that joy is not the same as happiness. You know that, right? Here's the difference. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is perspective. Joy is an outlook, which means even in suffering, even in difficulty, even in a death shadow, in the gloom of anguish, you can actually have joy. So you may be going through a season of extreme difficulty right now. You can actually have joy. It's an internal outlook. Joy rides the waves. Happiness rides the waves, excuse me, of circumstances. Joy is perspective. Joy is an outlook. It's seeing the deeper good beyond the surface bad. And Jesus is the one who changes our outlook. He changes our perspective. He gives us joy. So here they were in gloom and anguish. But when the light shines on them, they have joy. Now look at the verse. It says, they rejoice before what? What's it say? They rejoice before you. Now who's you? God. So peace and joy go hand in hand because shalom is inner contentment. It's inner fulfillment. And when we have that right perspective, that right outlook, you can see how contentment and fulfillment goes hand in hand with that. And it's all because we rejoice before God. So the presence of God brings the peace of God. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Shalom is light. Shalom is joy. Shalom is hope. Chains shall he break. In his name, all oppression shall cease. Actually, the psalm that this comes from was written in the mid-1800s during antebellum slavery in the U.S. And the lyric actually goes like this, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. Whew. 
Those are bold words to write in the 1850s because he, he breaks oppression. He shatters injustice. Look at verses four and five. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Those of you who have loved ones in the military, you should be shouting hallelujah right now. Because this is saying someday, one day, war will end. The yoke of burden, the rod of the oppressor will be broken. The burden is broken because he takes our burden off of our shoulders and places it on his own. We see that in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He breaks our burdens. The burden is broken. But also it says the warrior's boot and the blood-stained uniform on a soldier torn by war will be burned as kindling for a fire never to be used again. Do you realize that there are more conflicts, more wars since 1945 to now than the previous 20 centuries combined? We are not becoming a people of shalom, a more peaceful people. We are becoming a more warful people because we're sinners, because we're broken, because we have anti-shalom in us. But the war will cease. One day, there will be no more war. One day, only peace will reign. And if you have loved ones that served in the military, either now or back in the day, you would probably be shouting right now, amen, hallelujah, the war will cease. The war in Ukraine, future wars, future national conflicts, but not just wars without, wars within, wars in our own heart. So no more wars, no more fighting, no more need for soldiers, armies, weapons, no more conflict with others, and maybe most astounding of all, no more internal raging war within. The war has ceased. So shalom is light. Shalom is joy. Shalom is hope. And shalom is Jesus. Shalom is a person. Look at verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. Very well-known verse, especially this time of year. For unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So he takes the burden off of our shoulders, places it on his, and his name shall be called, say it with me, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So remember that phrase, Lord of hosts. It really means Lord of armies. We'll get to that in a second. So here is this Messiah that it's prophesying about. And he would be born as a child among God's people Israel. Israel. 
Now put yourself in the sandals of the original hearers. They're like, oh, yes, I love this prophecy, Isaiah. Gloom of anguish, gone. Peace, yes. No more war, no more conflict, yes. That's, well, oh, hold on, what? Did you just say a child? Okay. <laughs> oh, Isaiah. Oh, you're so funny. I thought I heard you say a child is our hope. Oh, oh you did say a child is our hope. Oh, a, a, a baby, a child is our hope? And the government, the dominion, the sovereignty, the kingdom of our God rests on his shoulders. What child is this? It says, to us, a child is born. To us. Meaning, from us. He's writing to the Jewish people, so he would be a Jewish child. Among us, he would be born in the land of Israel. And for us, born to save. But here's what's fascinating about this. So a child is born. That implies that he would have human parents, human parentage. He's human. But also look what it says, for to us a son is given. John 3.16, probably the most well-known verse, period. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son. So, yes, he's born. He's born among us. He's born to human parentage, but he is a son that is given. Given by who? Given by the Lord. He is both human and he is divine. This child is not just any child. It shows that he's fully human and fully divine. Only one born as a human baby, yet divine in essence, could bridge the gap between God and man, restoring the division between us and God, tearing down the wall of hostility and division between us and God that is there because of our spiritual rebellion, which we call sin. This God-man in the form of a child, perfect Messiah, bringing perfect shalom and restoration. Hallelujah, somebody. And it says that the dominion the sovereignty of God will rest on his shoulders. He's king with ultimate authority. What child is this? Who is this child? What is this name? Well, Isaiah doesn't give his name, but he gives several titles. And the titles given and the description of his kingdom far surpass any earthly king. And so the only feasible interpretation of this passage is that it is messianic. Every other righteous king in the history of Judah and Israel had flaws. And they certainly didn't bring about ultimate peace. Even King David, who was known after, as a man after God's own heart, his life was filled with war and violence. But not this king, not this child, not this son who is given. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Literally, a wonder of a counselor. So you would have such an extraordinary nature that others would be in awe, be in wonder of who he is. Their jaws would drop. He would be mind-blowing. Have any of you ever heard uh, Handel's Messiah? You know what I'm talking about? Where this beautiful concerto written 300 years ago by Handel. Uh, this beautiful just orchestra piece of music. Well, when you get to the hallelujah chorus at the very end, what does everyone in the auditorium do? You stand. You know why? In the mid-1700s, when Handel and his orchestra were playing this, the first time in London, King George II was there. 
And King George is sitting there and he's listening. And it's a beautiful piece if you've never heard of it because it's all not just musically beautiful, but all these lyrics come directly from the Bible, directly from Scripture, proclaiming the Messiah, proclaiming who Jesus is, his first coming and his second. And so King George is listening to this and it gets to the Hallelujah Chorus, you know, and he shall reign. For okay, I'm not going to sing it. You can tell I wasn't in choir. And he shall reign, right? And all this, and it's just this, he, he couldn't help himself. And the king stands to his feet in awe, in wonder. Now, when the king stands, what does everybody else do? Oh, you better stand. So 300 years later, to this day, when the Hallelujah Chorus is played, everybody stands in recognition of the awe, the wonder of this Christ child. His words, his teaching of truth would be supernatural and awe-inspiring. And the counselor would live perfectly. He would exhibit miraculous acts of God. He would perfectly enact his father's will, perfect plans and wise will of God. He'd be a wonderful counselor. He'd be mighty God. El Gibor in Hebrew. It's a term only given to God. It's an expression used in worship to God. In fact, we see in the next chapter, Isaiah 10, 21, Mighty God, it signifies omnipotence, limitless strength. Never, ever, ever would this be used of just any old person. This was used of God alone. So how could a child born of man be equated with mighty God? I'll tell you how. Isaiah, a monotheistic Jewish prophet, is saying that the Messiah King, born as a human baby, is equivalent with God because he is God. He's mighty God, El Gabor. So he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, and then what? Everlasting father. He would have fatherly love for his people. A good father is concerned with his children, cares for them, protects them, provides for them, shows the compassion, loves them, but eventually every father leaves. Because at least, at the very least, every father dies. But not this one. This is not a father who goes away He's everlasting. And then lastly, it says, Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. This child would be called Prince of Shalom. In fact, look what it says, verse 7. He would be on the throne of David, meaning in the royal line of King David, the greatest king in Israel's history. He would be in his lineage. He would be a descendant from King David, which Jesus was. Why is this important? Because in 2 Samuel 7, God makes an everlasting covenant with King David where he says, your kingdom, David, and your descendants will never end. Now, King David died. Solomon, his son, died. Rehoboam, his grandson, died. And every king after died. So how can this be true? How could it be? I mean, this says he will establish and uphold his kingdom of peace forever. You look at history, every kingdom, every empire falls. Every empire. Not this one. Not this king. Not this kingdom. His will never fall. And in the sovereignty of this Davidic king, there will be no end to his shalom peace. It's everlasting peace. And he will rule over his kingdom. He will rule with justice and righteousness forever. In Isaiah 11, two chapters later, we see that it talks about there will be such a reign of peace that the wolf will dwell with the lamb. 
the lion will lay down with the uh, uh, calf, next to a calf. Bears and cows will eat grass. They'll graze together next to each other. A child will be playing with a cobra and not be bitten. That, <laughs> the predator will dwell peacefully with the prey. It's saying there will be that kind of peace, perfect shalom. Now, I've watched a lot of National Geographic. I've seen Animal Planet, and I've never seen like, oh, here we see the lion. Oh, and he's stalking his, he's stalking the gazelle. And oh, what, oh, he's snuggling with the gazelle. What is this? Oh, the wolf is kissing the lamb. Oh, what? no, I've never seen that. Because this hasn't happened yet. This perfect shalom in our world, has it happened? No. In fact, Google, every year, they do a year in review uh, video. Maybe you've seen this, if you watched YouTube, this advertisement keeps coming up. They do a theme, and this year's theme was one of the most often searched queries for Google. And it was this phrase, you ready for this? Can I change? People are longing to change. They're like, something's not right. Something's not right. I feel brokenness. I feel shattered. Something's missing. I don't feel shalom. Can I change? Meanwhile, folks, we have the answer. We would say a resounding, how would we answer that question? Yes! Not on our own willpower, but through his. He changes us. People want shalom. And here's Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom, and he restores our brokenness. He makes us whole forever. So this passage connects the importance of his first coming with his imminent return. That's why at Christmas, during the Advent season, we talk so much about Jesus is coming back. His second coming is as certain as his first. The God who came as a child is coming back as a conquering king forever. Scotty Smith says it this way, because of who Jesus is and what he already accomplished, one day there will be no more terror, tears, or tears. There will be no more brokenness or even broken downness. No more heartache or heartburn. No more human trafficking or even human tooth decay. No more war or even worry. No more evil or even envy. No more poverty or even pouting. No more injustice or even jawing. No more not yet, not enough, not now. Jesus is our shalom. Praise God. And so, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Where do we see this fulfilled in the New Testament? Luke chapter 2. Well-known passage, especially at Christmas time. We're not going to read the whole thing, but let me just summarize it. An angel appears before a group of shepherds. Now, why shepherds? Why these dirty, disgusting, dangy, smelly outcasts, often regarded as thieves, lowest rung on the social ladder? Because the gospel is for everyone, anyone. And the king of the universe notices the lowest of the low. Now imagine this scene with me. Look at verse 9. In darkest of night, in pitch black night, the light of the glory of the Lord shone around them. So you think about the light of the glory, perfect glory, which we will see in heaven where we have no need for a star, no need for a sun because Jesus is our light. That light shines in the darkness, illuminates the horizon. Notice the juxtaposition of darkness and light. 
We see the same thing in Isaiah 9 too. And, they, and of course, the shepherds are afraid. It says, in fact, they were frightened a great fear. Yeah, you would be too. This would be a great place for adult diapers because <laughs> you would be really, really scared. I probably shouldn't have said that, but whatever. <laughs> the angel then gives the most often repeated command in the Bible. Do you know what it is? Fear not. Because they're afraid. He says, fear not. Why? Why, angel? For I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Good news. In Greek, it's euangelizo. It's where we get our word evangelism. It's the gospel. And it's, it's the gospel of joy. In fact, literally in, in the Greek, it says mega joy. The gospel of mega, remarkable, extraordinary in magnitude kind of joy. They were to trade it in their great fear for great joy. And the gospel of great joy would be for all the people. Not all peoples, but all the people. Meaning all the people of God. Believers from every people group. So what's the good news? We'll look at verse 11. For unto you is born today in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This is Isaiah 9, 6 fulfilled. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. He'd be born in the line of David, born in the city of David, heir of the eternal Davidic covenant. And the angel doesn't give a name. He doesn't say, look for Jesus or look for Yeshua. He says he is Savior, he's Messiah, he's Lord. So I just wonder, in the minds of the shepherds, what's going through their head? Did they think about Isaiah 9 at this point? What child could this be? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. We got to see this child. He says, the, the angel, here's the sign. You will see a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now that's not extraordinary. That's not atypical. When we, both of our girls, when they were born, I got really good at swaddling, like, you know, fold, fold, tuck, fold, fold, boom. In fact, I would like try to time myself. You know, and they'd, you know. <laughs> That's what you do with babies. We've been doing it for thousands of years. But this baby would be lying in a manger? Not a star like in the nativity scenes that we see. That's what guided the wise men months later. It's a feeding trough for animals. Oh, the humility of our Messiah King, our mighty God. And it's announced to peasant shepherds, the eternal highest glory placed not in a royal bassinet, but in a food dish for livestock. Again, shows divine humility from the highest place of glory to the lowest of the low on earth. And then instantaneously, there was with the angel a heavenly host, God's royal entourage, heavenly army. Remember, he's Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. So there's this massive army of angelic beings that just, I believe, fills the horizon. Perhaps every angel in existence, like, oh, I gotta see this. I can't miss this. Multitude, it says a multitude of them, beyond count, filling the horizon. How ironic, by the way, is it that the Lord uses a heavenly army to be heralds of peace? And here's what they say. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. They proclaim the glory of God because God's glory is the reason and purpose for everything. And then it says, and on earth peace, peace on earth among those whom he is pleased, those who 
have his favor. Not, and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Which that's what we sing, right? But that's not the best translation of the Greek. In fact, it's kind of universalistic. God's peace, God's goodwill doesn't go to all people. God doesn't give a shalom peace to every person. God gives peace for people on whom his favor rests. And another word for favor is grace. Most New Testament letters started with grace and peace. Again, they go hand in hand, grace and peace. There is no peace without grace, no peace without grace. There's no grace, there's no peace. Because peace, shalom, is a reconciliation, again, between God and man. The dividing wall between us and God comes down through Jesus on the cross where our walk with him is restored. Jesus is saying, I will pay the penalty. I will do whatever it takes, pay the cost to make this redemptive work happen so that God and man can dwell together again. And God only favors us, he's only pleased with us through this child who is born to us, this son who is given by grace to us. He was born to die, given for our salvation. So let's go back to John 14, 27 that we talked about last week. Let's revisit this. Jesus says, shalom I leave with you, my shalom I give to you. Not as the world do I give to you, but let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The world doesn't offer peace. It offers fake peace substitutes. The world doesn't offer peace. The world needs peace. Jesus offers his peace. Jesus has perfect shalom, perfect restoration, perfect reconciliation with the Father. He's one with him, and that's the kind of peace he offers us. Perfect shalom, perfect peace with God, because of Jesus, we have that in Jesus because of what Jesus did on the cross. So I hear this all the time. We need to put Christ back in Christmas. Well, yes, that's true. But church, listen, how about we first put Christ back in Christian? We need to let the world see Christ in us and his shalom peace in us. Here's the point. Shalom Jesus brings shalom to our hearts and one day to our world because he is shalom. I want every head bowed, every eye closed. As we enter into a time of prayer, you know, every week, Pastor Chris Whetstone, our small groups pastor at Bethel, he writes uh, questions, curriculum based on the sermon series, and it's really good, by the way. And I know some individuals who've been using it for their devotional time. Here's a question that I thought was so provocative, provoking in a good way. Here's the question he said, on a scale from one to 10, on a scale from empty to flow, overflowing, how full is your peace tank currently? Think about that. How full is your peace tank? Why? What number would you give it? Don't say it out loud. In what way do you need Jesus' peace right now? As you're thinking about that, let me read the lyrics of a song called Peace by Amanda Cook. Listen to this. My, Je my Jehovah Shalom, you are peace to a restless soul, peace when my thoughts wage war, peace to the anxious heart, peace when my fear takes hold, peace when I feel enclosed, peace when I lose control. That's who you are. 
I have found peace far beyond all understanding. Let it flow when my mind's under siege. All anxiety bows in the presence of Jesus, the keeper of peace. For peace is a promise he keeps.